the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ according to Mark. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the Spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, You are my beloved Son, with, with you I am well pleased. The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning again. Uh, this morning, I have the privilege of actually introducing our guest speaker preacher. Uh, his name is Dr. Ryan Reeves. Uh, Ryan and I grew up together. Some of you have heard Ryan before uh, here at the DI Fellowship. Uh, Ryan is uh, a partner, a partnering theologian in mission, we call him. Uh, he's on staff with Gordon Conwell Theological Seminary. He's also an adjunct professor at Reform Theological Seminary. He's a regular contributor to the Gospel Coalition, and he's most well-known for taking complex issues and making them accessible to the masses through his uh, online platform on YouTube, which is Historical Theology for Everyone. Uh, look for Ryan's book on how the Bible even came together in the early church that's being published here this spring in September. So with that being said, Ryan's from Little Polk County, Lake Wales, Florida, where we grew up in the same youth group. And we've known each other and been friends for life. And it's just amazing to see who God has made him to be and how God is using him. And I know he blesses me when he comes on a quarterly basis. And I pray that he blesses you as he brings us into this new series which is on the book of Mark. And so with that, can we give Ryan a warm Daniel Island Fellowship welcome. Thank you. Morning. Morning. Um, the year is 1809, and we're in London. And there's a small little house in the, the heart of London. It's now actually a store. But it's the house of a widow, Mrs. Tottenham. And Mrs. Tottenham, of course, the worst day of her life would have been the, the loss of her husband. She is about to have the second worst day of her life. Early in the morning, a chimney sweep arrived. And that's very common in this day and age. You have to use coal or wood fire to heat the place. You'll have... Uh, natural gas and other things as we do today. It's not even a time of electricity yet. So a chimney sweep shows up, but it's not the time for the normal hiring of the chimney sweep. So they send this person away. And then another comes, and then another comes, and then a total of 12 chimney sweeps 
arrive. That, at that point, they realize something's up, that there is some problem that is going on that all these folks are coming. But it's not just them, because as soon as the light of day was on, or was out, I should say, suddenly people began to arrive with all types of goods. There were several cake makers that arrived with wedding cakes that they had not ordered because she didn't have even uh, a boyfriend yet or any uh, chance of a marriage. And needless to say, she didn't need many wedding cakes, uh, much less one. Many wedding cakes showed up, as well as a delivery from all types of chefs, totaling around 2,500 raspberry tarts. After that, several doctors, lawyers, gardeners, fishmongers, dentists, um, grocers, priests, couch makers, carpet manufacturers, wig makers, coach makers, courtesy dealers, which you can look that up later on Wikipedia what that is, uh, op uh, optician, brewers, shoemakers, and others arrived. They all brought their wares that they thought had been ordered for that day. At one point, the Lord Mayor of London showed up, as well as the Archbishop of Canterbury. Then, to make matters worse, uh, roughly one dozen grand pianos were delivered that day. And uh, six men at once tried to lug in a giant organ, those old-fashioned organs uh, as they used to be. All this happened, and she had not asked for any of it. Now, the reason for this is this is actually, in history, the greatest practical joke that has ever been played. The story itself was, if you'd actually been standing there that day looking across the street, you'd have seen two men sniggering the entire time, because one had bet the other that they could not make this little old house in the middle of downtown London the most talked about house in all of London for an entire day. And he says, oh yeah, you want to bet? And he said, yeah, sure, and this is what he did. He sent out letters, and he ordered all of these things, even sent letters to the mayor and to the Archbishop of Canterbury, and said, will you come? It is urgent. And this is a day when letters were uh, a lot better received than they are with sort of so many emails we get today. These people showed up, and uh, what ended up happening is, is there was a riot in the middle uh, of that street because all these folks had done the work. They had brought, they'd lugged the organ and other things in, uh, at least to the street, to the door of the house, and they wanted their money. The culprits were never caught, and they went off laughing and thought it was a funny joke, and no one has ever since repeated that type of thing, uh, certainly not in London. This is one of the things, by the way, in commerce that led to uh, people being unable simply to send a letter asking for things, uh, and people would just make the goods and show up. You actually then had to go and sign and pay down payments and things, because otherwise, who's to say if you really did order it or not? Now, I don't know what you make of that story, but what's interesting about that story is that when an entire city shows up at someone's doorstep, it's worth something. Something's going on. Some, something has happened. That doesn't happen out of nowhere. When an entire city streams to do something, it means something's going on. And it is certainly the case when an entire city is streaming out to see a weirdo out in the middle of the desert, which is exactly what is happening at the beginning of Mark. Wild honey sounds good, but locusts are bugs, y'all. <laughs> And not crawdaddies, they're real bugs. They're the bugs you have to eat. 
A camel shirt in these things is, is uh, like wearing rough, hard, coarse wool. It's just basically going to chafe the skin. He's a holy man and an ascetic out there in the desert baptizing folks. Why in the world would folks do this? Why in the world would all of the Jews of Jerusalem be streaming out to see this and to be baptized and to take part in this weirdness, including Christ himself when he comes onto the scene? Well, that's actually an interesting story. And that story is the whole reason for the opening chapters of the book of Mark, and really it frames the whole book of Mark. Some of you will notice that Mark doesn't begin with the birth story of Christ. He starts with this story. It's not because he didn't believe Christ had a miraculous birth or any of that type of stuff. It's not that he forgot those things. He rather starts at one point in the scene that he purposely wants us to focus on, and it actually begins very boldly with the beginning of the gospel. Now, in the Greek there, it actually is just one word, arche, A-R-C-H-E. And that word used that way is like the opening of the book of Genesis, which we remember as in the beginning God created. Here it's in the beginning, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's throwing a big card down on the table saying, pay attention to what's about to happen. And then he paints the picture of the one calling in the wilderness out in the badlands, out where the wolves are, out where you will actually get killed in the night if you're not careful. And there is this holy man that is doing strange things like baptizing and everyone's going out there. Now his audience would know what has happened and why they're doing this, but you and I might be less familiar with it. You see, what had happened in the history of Israel was something that no one could have expected from its early days. Israel is rescued out of Egypt. They're brought to the land of Canaan, this uh, tiny strip there uh, uh, along the Mediterranean with Jerusalem as its southern capital. Uh, it's still the same roughly uh, area that we know today as uh, at least Israel and Jerusalem, etc. Jerusalem is still the same, though it's been obviously war-torn and many years and centuries of things have happened to it, but that's basically the same spot. God brings them out of Egypt, sets them there, gives them a law, and says, love me. I've rescued you, now love me. And over a long course of time, they do much the opposite than follow God's commands. Now, there are ups, certainly, but there are a lot of downs. A, a big up is the King David, but even King David does dumb stuff, like Bathsheba and other things. There's no one really doing it well, perfectly well. And even if David had done it perfectly well, by the time his grandsons are on the throne, they're idiots, and they've ruined everything, and they actually create a civil war that destroys uh, uh, the, the, the unity of Israel so that the northern ten tribes become what we will later call the Samaritans. You can maybe know now in the Gospels why the Samaritans and the Jews hate each other. There's a natural civil war going on here. But they have this civil war that happens, and they keep bringing in false gods and false gods and lots of just sort of sensuality comes into their worship. Things that I won't even describe to you because it would uh, scandalize you, frankly. And it really is that much. I'm hardly scandalized having grown up in Polk County as a redneck all those years. <laughs> this stuff will scandalize you. And they do all this stuff. And God says repeatedly, I'm long-suffering. I forgive. Just come back. Just love me. So... Let's go ahead and get rid of one thing. If you think the Old Testament God is a God of wrath and anger, you're kidding yourselves. For centuries, he watched his people slap him in the face after he had rescued them. Now, he does say eventually, I will send you into what we might call a, a, a long time out in exile. 
And it really is what it is, because he says, you will lose what I gave you, and you will go back to what you had before, which was slavery. Is that what you want? No, okay, we're sorry, but then immediately they start doing it again. And eventually he does let them go off into exile. They then come back through the, just a, a miracle of God's uh, grace and love. He, he actually uh, anoints a pagan, chooses a pagan king to say, eh, let's send them back. No, no questions asked. Let's let them go back to their land. Cyrus issues this edict and they go back. You would think they would be grateful, but they're not quite fully grateful yet. So if you ever want to know the chronology, you want to read the books for the last of the Old Testament, the last chronology books, read Ezra and Nehemiah. That those are, they're in the middle, it's weird, but they're actually the chronologically the last books. Ezra and Nehemiah are a bummer. They, they start, they, again, they have those ups, they find the Bible in a closet somewhere that they've lost, and they read it out loud, and they weep, and they want to do this, but they can't, and then they start to slowly creep back again. And then God shuts the heavens for several hundred years. He no longer sends prophets after Ezra, Nehemiah, and Malachi, and a couple, and a couple other of the minor prophets. Done. Nothing is heard from God. Again, they still have the scriptures. They certainly still know his will, and they know what they should be doing. They have enough to live by, but they do not have prophets anymore. It is a painful several hundred year silence. And in fact, in the rabbinical traditions, the, the, the Talmud and things that are written between the Old and New Testament, there's actually this one painful phrase where they talk about the bath call, which is in Hebrew, it's a Hebrew expression of, it's, it, it literally means the daughter of the voice. But it, it, the best way to translate it in English is echo. The daughter of the voice, meaning that what's left over after the voice, the thing after the voice ceases is there. All they have, they say, is God's echo. They don't hear from him anymore. They don't send, he doesn't send prophets. Even the priests that are doing their best to follow the law are not themselves anointed and called like they once were. And there is this profound anxiety in God's people. And then suddenly a wild man shows up. And he's out in the badlands. And he's saying, I will bring you repentance and I am a prophet and I have come back. And they cannot, they're sort of beside themselves so much with the hope and the eagerness of it. They've all built up in their minds what this might mean when they get this back, when they restore the relationship, that they all have their ideas about what will happen. And the initial thing we know is that they all focus on John the baptizer. He's not a Baptist, by the way. He's John the baptizing one. John, John was just what he was called. He is, happens to be a baptizer in his prophetic role. So many, I grew up a lot of Baptists. They always thought this is where their church started. Um, but in, in this day, he is a prophet. He's not just a preacher. A prophet after several hundred years. And they go out to him, and he actually utters an even more startling phrase, that he's just the messenger. He says, I'm just sprinkling you with water, dunking you in water. They did both, by the way. He says, I'm just sort of giving you water baptism, but one is coming who will give you the Holy Spirit. See, at that point, everyone who knew their Old Testament, their ears would have perked up. Because not everybody got the Holy Spirit in the Old Testament. The only people who were given the Holy Spirit in this way were prophets and priests and kings. And he says he is going to baptize all of you with this. And that is the opening of Mark. 
Those of you who then are going to be led through this book, uh, as you read it and as you hear sermons in it, you have to realize Mark is going to put you off balance the entire time. The writing style of it, those of you who know music, he's writing in, in an allegro style. He's writing extraordinarily fast. All, all the scenery is fast, next, next, next. The word immediately, for example, shows up about 15 or 20 times. It actually showed up in the verses today. Immediately he goes and does this. Immediately he does this. And then it finishes the story, and then it says, and then he did this. It's a very fast tempo. Every single section, every single like, mini section within each paragraph, or each chapter, I should say, focuses on Christ except for two. The one we read today, which led up to Christ, and then one in chapter six. Everything else, it's Jesus in control, in power, and he's freaking everyone out. Because you see, those people who went out to get baptized and who were making a show of their repentance, did, weren't just always themselves honest people coming to repent. Some of them, of course, were. Because what Jesus immediately says is, follow me. And they're like, yeah, we'll follow you. Are you going to do some stuff like miracles and things? And he does for a while. And then he stops doing that. And he says, actually, I'm going to die. I'm going to let the Romans kill me. And even his disciples say, no, 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 no. Don't do that, Jesus. At every point... The entirety of the book of Mark is freaking people out. In fact, the phrase, and they were afraid, is said at least six times. And, and not only that, the book ends with the phrase, and they were afraid. After the resurrection, they go to the empty tomb, and the angel says, he is gone, he is risen, and it says, and they were afraid. So if you want to know Mark, split it in half. The first eight chapters, Jesus makes himself known. He is dominant. He will not let anyone control him. He, in fact, those of you that are in marketing or in social media or PR, any of those types of things, you might say it this way. Jesus repeatedly controls the narrative for eight chapters. He will do a miracle and then forbid someone to go tell other people about it. Why? Because he knows what they'll do with it. He knows that they'll take it and say, free candy? I'm coming. And they'll start rushing for the, the good stuff, but they won't be coming for him. And that's the key. The opening of Mark and the rest of it is, you think you're going to come to me for stuff, come to me for me. Because if you want stuff, I have it in spades and I can do anything. But if you come to me for those things, you're not coming to me on my terms. And that is what many people did with Jesus. They wanted things. They wanted blessing. They wanted their wars to be won. They wanted their bank accounts to be stronger, better, their portfolios to do better. They wanted increase and comfort. They wanted an end to the hard times, which is why they were willing to put themselves through temporary things like going out and being baptized. But what Jesus says is, I will not do those things. You cannot control me. And for that, many people were afraid until the end, until he was resurrected, until he came back and said, here's why you never understood what happened. You see, in the heart of every man or woman is the belief that they're going to actually help Jesus out. That they have a certain arithmetic that they can do, a certain liturgy or a certain process, that if they do it right, if they do it consistently, he'll take away whatever's bothering you, whatever troubles you, whatever ails you. And he will add to your life the things that you feel are missing. In the heart of every one of us is the belief that we are co-laborers with Christ. 
You might say that the book of Mark, if you wanted one phrase, the book of Mark says salvation is a spectator sport. You watch Christ save you. You do not help him one bit. You don't control him. You don't make him do things. He asks you simply to trust him and to love him. And in a world where loving and trusting is so hard, it's much easier to ask for things. But what he says is, I will not do those things. Come to me. And in fact, that is what happens in the beginning of this verse when God, for the first time in several hundred years, speaks. In fact, it doesn't just say he speaks. It says that the heavens were ripped open. That the closing of the heavens finally was undone. And God himself says, not, hey, I've got some good stuff in your life. I've got a great plan for things. Uh, don't worry. Better days lie ahead. He says, look at him. He is my son that I sent. He is the one that you trust. If there's any better reason to trust him, it's that the voice of God himself says, that's my son, trust him. That he knows, in other words, how hard it is to put your trust in someone else. How hard it is to follow and, and be a disciple. But what Jesus will later say is, I'm not giving you a hard task. Just trust me. You're going to actually stumble and fall a lot, and you're not going to do it very well. You're sheep, and sheep are stupid. Well, if you know that about sheep. Some of you here might know about this. Every time I preach in, like, Boston, where our main campus is or something, they're so uh, urbanized, they've never been around a farm. But I was like, guys, sheep are dumb. They're not the easiest animals. That, that's why one of them just gets lost when there's, like, 500 of them over here. Um, sheep are not the best. But Jesus says, you're sheep. I get it. I know. I know you don't trust, and you wander, and you leave but I'm coming for you. You don't come for me. All I ask is that you trust me. Some of you have been to Africa, and if you've been to Africa, maybe you've seen Mount Kilimanjaro. It uh, has a, a very funny name, Kilimanjaro does. It's called Fat Man's Mountain. Uh, and it's called Fat Man's Mountain because fat people can climb it. It's not Everest. And what happens if you ever climb Mount Kilimanjaro is you have a guide because there are a couple of different paths to get up to the top. And one of the things that typically happens at the beginning is the guide will sit there and say, just walk with me. You have two rules. Don't walk off the path because there are things on the mountain that you do not want to fall into and you can get yourself uh, into traps or fall into places that you don't see. Follow me. Just walk on this very one degree slope increase that will not be that hard if you just stay behind me. And he says, secondly, trust me, I know what I'm doing. And my pastor went on this one time, and he says, it's, it's very frustrating, because you get to this part where you're like halfway up, and you're already over it, and you see, like, if you just keep going up that path up that way, then you'll be done pretty quick. A couple days, maybe, uh, maybe a couple hours, I should say. Uh, and the guy says, nope, we're going that way. And it's down, 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 then back up. And he says, half the group always complains. Can we just go? I see it. Can I we just do that? And the guide always says, no, if we go that way, half of you won't make it. Trust me. Follow me. I know what I'm doing. That's the book of Mark. It, over and over and over again. Are you sure, Jesus? Are you sure, Jesus? Yes. Trust me. Trust me. Trust me. You and I are not any different when it comes to Christ. We have our burdens. We have the things that we want to get from him. You're not going to get them, though, unless you come to him. He will not be controlled that way. One of my favorite stories, maybe still some thunder who preaches on this letter, is in a couple chapters when there is the story of the calming of the sea. 
Jesus is seemingly out of it, sleeping in the middle of a boat. You guys have been on boats, I'm sure. You know that it's not easy to sleep on boats. He's just like actually snoring in like one part of the boat, uh, completely seemingly out of it, not protecting the disciples. People that are very used to the seas actually think they're going to die. They don't say, hey, it seems a little choppy. They say, Jesus, we're dying and you don't care. That's literally what they say. So they have given up. They think it's, it's over. And Jesus says what to them? Don't you trust me? And then he says two words, just two words in the Greek. Shut up and be quiet, literally, is what he says. And the seas go glass, like you sometimes see in the morning when you go out onto the water. And he says, don't you trust me? That is what Jesus is always offering you. Trust me. Does it seem like he's uh, asleep at the wheel? Does it seem like he's forgotten you? Does it seem like he ought to have taken something away in your life by now? Trust him. Is he giving you blessing? Trust him with that. If it means that you have to uh, consider a new way of living in your financial means. Is it with your talent? Is it with a job? It could be anything. Is it with your marriage that seems to be breaking? Trust him is what he's saying at every single point. Not get things, but trust me. Everything else he says he will give to you. And the reality is, is when you trust him the way that he is, it's actually an adventure. It's actually a life that's worth living, a life where you don't have to be in charge 24-7. Because newsflash, you're not in charge 24-7. We make that our rule, but we're not in charge. And what Jesus says is when you know that and you follow me, then you make it to the top. Then faith in Christian living is not some burden and it's not some candy machine that you just kick it the right way and two gumballs fall out instead of one. There's a sort of spiritual Fonzie uh, ethic going on there or something. You believe that you're going to get what you want, and that's, that's what's there. Look, we all have that. We all want things. It's true. If you have kids, you know, they're needy. They, they're hungry. They have all kinds of needs. It's fine. That is actually the main relationship we have, thanks to Jesus. He says, he is your father in heaven, and he knows what you need. But don't focus on the need, focus on the love and the trust. And I dare say that for many of you, it's much easier to be needy than it is to be admitting that you're not trusting or admit that you don't like actually having to bend your knee and be a disciple. It's easier to say, well, God, I just need things, I need things. God, I'm praying for this right now, praying for this, I'm praying for this. And maybe God's shut up the heavens for a while on you. And he's saying, do you need me? Do you need my voice? Do you need to be with me? Not simply with me for things, but with me. Because those who say, I need you, and I'm broken, and I'm a screw-up, and I'm, I, I never get it right, Jesus says, come on, that's fine. I know. I know exactly what's going on. He doesn't have a standard then. The people he puts standards on are the people that think that they're going to gumball machine Jesus, think they're going to control him. And he says, oh, really? Well, what about this? What about this? And he starts to play coy. But those who say, look, I'm broken. I'm just a sheep. I need help. I just need you. I know you'll take care of the other stuff, and I'll pray for those things. But right now, I just need you. That's discipleship. And that's what Mark is about. From beginning to the end, in fact, if you wanted to know the bookends of it, I mentioned that there is the, that the end of Mark, there are the people who are afraid. The other ending, just before that, involves you and I. 
Because at the very end there, that Jesus, that radical man, that crazy, uh, outside-of-the-box Messiah is confessed by a Roman soldier, no less, the man who put him on the cross, said, truly, this is the Son of God. Even at that point, he realizes something's wrong. I need him. And all those uh, insiders that thought they knew how to control God, they are now on the outside. Those who were radical outsiders suddenly belong and they can be screw-ups, but they know who they need, not what they need. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, and we're not going to ask for anything right at this moment, though there are many things we could ask for. We're going to confess that we don't always know how to approach you as a father. We don't know always how to approach you as the one we need. We know how to ask for things, but... Really, fundamentally, at the first step, we need you. May our eyes be open to the relationship that we need first. And may we trust that you have it on every other point in our life. That you know our needs before we ask, and that when we ask, it's not simply for the thing, but it's because we're coming to our daddy, and we know how to pray. But for now, Lord, bind our wounds. Uh, heal our broken hearts and send us out uh, and open our lips to praise. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.